Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is an online forum for the world's most interesting thinkers and doers to share their ideas on video. Since 2008, we've shared over 10,000 of them. On the Think Again podcast, we surprise our guests and me, your host, with unexpected clips unearthed from these archives, and then we talk about them. I'm thrilled to be joined today by the design entrepreneur and web curator and all-around force for creative good, Tina Roth Eisenberg, a.k.a. Swiss Miss. She does about seven million different things, all of them (laughs) awesome. Tina, if New York were on fire, which of these seven million projects would you save and your kids don't count? That's a given. Very clearly, I would save Creative Mornings. It's my biggest labor of love, hands down. By the way, I feel really guilty right now. I feel like I just favored a child. <laughs> so, <laughs> if the rest of my teams listen to this, I love you all. But <laughs> I set Tina up for this with a very oh, unfair question. I just feel guilty. Patly, you're not forgotten. So what is Creative Mornings? Creative Mornings is, simply put, a breakfast lecture series that happens once a month. And right now, 119 cities around the world and growing. We, grow by, we are growing by three to five cities a month. It's like Tet for the creative community. Here's how this works on Think Again. The producers have chosen short surprise interview clips for us to listen to and discuss. They could be on any subject, and they're a total surprise to me, too. You ready? Shall we start? (laughs) Okay. All right. Jonathan, Tina, and I are ready, we hope. Sure. We have Adam Alter on the psychology of color. Drunk Tank Pink is a shade of pink paint that psychologists used to use to paint the inside of jail cells. And in the 1960s, a group of psychologists went around schools in Canada and they tried to find a colour of paint that would pacify the aggressive students or the badly behaved students and that would also improve their engagement in class. They had theories about which colours would work best and ultimately they found that pink was the best colour. It had the greatest tendency to lead people to be calmer, the students were more engaged. And a couple of naval officers who were at a prison in Seattle said that they wanted to try this. So what they decided to do was to bring this pink paint to their prison and to paint the inside of one of the jail cells bright pink. And so since people were calling jail cells drunk tanks, they called it drunk tank pink. And what they found was that the prisoners they put in there, these were the worst prisoners, the most dangerous and the most aggressive prisoners. When they were badly behaved, they would put them inside this this drunk tank pink cell for about 15 minutes. And what they reported was that over a nine-month period, there wasn't a single aggressive or violent incident. And this gained a lot of currency. People were very curious about it, about its other applications. Football coaches from from Division I schools started to wonder whether they could paint the visiting locker rooms the same color to pacify their opponents. It could be because we associate pink with uh, perhaps femininity, and therefore these aggressive males tended to be a little bit more reserved. It could be something about this color and how it interacts with our physiology. And that's one of the arguments that the founder of the color, the guy who named the color, makes. He suggests that there is something about the way this color hits our eyes and interacts with our brains that leads us to be calmer. I'm not sure that I buy that 100%. I think the, the better explanation is probably about our expectations and our associations when we see the color pink. But that complexity, I think, is present in a lot of the examples in the book. I think pink would make me more aggressive. I think it would Same make here. me crazy. Same here. I agree. I mean, maybe it's not empirically true. I don't know. But 
There's I, literally a nail salon down the street I will not go into because it's pink and the branding is pink. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I would think that prisoners, especially aggressive prisoners, right, who are like angry men, being put in a pink room would see that it is pink and be annoyed that it is pink Look and not as want an to be there. Yeah. But then again, I mean, there's so many things that we can't rationally explain, but. But then when you do a test, I always thought about that when we did A-B testing, when I did a lot of user interfaces, the things that I was convinced are not going to work. Maybe if the button is in the top right, sure enough, those are the things that work. Right. Um, but I mean, Adam Alter takes it to a whole level. He actually gave a Creative Mornings talk. And it was funny, at that morning, I was dressed from head to toe in red. And there he is talking about the power of red on how, like, you know, how sports team, if they wear red outfits are more likely to win because it's intimidating right. and right. powerful or how if you're hitchhiking and you wear a red t-shirt or if you're online dating and you wear a red t-shirt, you're more likely to be picked. Let's talk about red, the power color, a little bit because I guess for exactly the same reasons that it succeeds as a power color, I find it somewhat off-putting. I find it too aggressive. Well, I'm my last name is red in German. The flag of Switzerland yes. where I grew up is yes. red. So, yes. And my mom used to really own the color red with her red nails and her red outfit. So it's interesting how a color can influence you. I don't know anything about the history of the flag of Switzerland, but I know that the red on white always strikes me as severe. Like I mm -hmm. think of blood on snow or something like that. I suppose that's what flags do. They're meant to be striking and intimidating. Okay, I've never heard anyone say that the Swiss flag is intimidating. That's a new one, man. And that design aesthetic, I guess, is also Swiss generally, and that region of the world tends yes, toward minimalism. Absolutely, yes. absolutely. You came out of that, you trained in that. Did America in any way change your orientation toward minimalism? Moving to a different country, different culture, is like the best thing you can do as a young person because it just really opens your viewpoint on the world and broadens your horizons, right? So when I moved to New York for what was supposed to be a three-month internship, I didn't really know what to do with this extreme appreciation for Swiss design and started to realize, oh, it's really held on a pedestal. So I remember when I was uh, interviewing again for a job, I was invited to these interviews. Oftentimes I realized I was invited because I am Swiss and I was trained in Switzerland. I hope I can help my kids understand certain cultural advantages or things that we're known for because we grew up where we are. Eventually I started using the tagline, Swiss designer gone New York. And that was like, it was amazing. Like it changed everything. So following up on what you just said, what would you teach your children, what would you want them to value in what is unique to the culture that they're growing up in? So the Swiss are known for when they do something, they will deliver the best product they possibly can. It has to be perfect, which is an incredible quality. At the same time, in America, I feel like the American culture experiments, allows for experimentation, allows for being playful, allows for trying something and being okay to fail. Whereas in Switzerland, you don't fail. So there's this over-cautiousness in the Swiss culture. Gotcha. So when you combine these two things and always have really high standards, but at the same time allow yourself to maybe fall and trip, at least experimenting. So what is the Swiss side of you saying about being on a podcast where you have no idea what you're going to be talking about in advance? It terrifies me. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, come on. I'm to a certain extent a bit of a control freak. I feel very comfortable if I'm invited to speak 
no matter how big the room is, if I can prepare. This is where I'm really Swiss again. I can rehearse and I can prepare and I can make sure I will make a good impression. But the fact that you're going to put stuff in front of me and I don't know what it is, terrifies me. But, but that's where you, I feel the American culture is really comfortable. But I would think that design, like any art, is about creating something new, discovering something unknown, something that hadn't been there before. There mm -hmm. has to be that element of wow yeah, and of dazzle course. and creative surprise, right? How does that align or how does that work with perfectionism? You come to me and say, I want a new website. Here's what I'm envisioning, right? And then I go back into my little world and I start brainstorming and sketching and, and I come up with iterations. And then I come and present to you. I prepare. So you're allowing yourself the messiness and the, and the mistakes and so forth. You're just doing them privately, basically. Yeah, and I'm not doing it right in front of you because right. that wouldn't work. So let's bring the conversation briefly back to color before we wind it up. I wonder whether design on the whole would change if neuroscientists began studying the effects of every color on every brain and we learned that for the most part, blue does the same thing to everybody. As a designer, would that influence you or would you just be like, I have to go by my own inner aesthetic? Well, I think there's, there's more components. When I used to run my own design studio and I would create websites or, or logos for someone, I oftentimes, after one or two meetings, could walk away and look at my coworkers and say, like, he's the type blue. He wants everything blue because it's the safe, neutral kind of color there. It's what you think represents you, right? Blue is so, safe and neutral. Blue is oh my, my favorite color. What are you saying? Oh, my God. Whenever, whenever <laughs> a client couldn't really... Like, the non-daring ones all go blue. That's really funny. So blue is associated with caution in your mind. To yeah. me, blue is associated with the ocean, the mysterious, nighttime, wonder, surprise, magic. Like but look at, like, stuff. financial services. They're all blue. But, you like, know? navy blue. That's sort of like Okay, now we're going to details. And you see, my big blue. dream is to experience color through someone else's eyes. Like, yeah. That is my dream. I want to see how my kids see color. Because we are not looking at the same thing. There's two buttons on our screen right now here. Or your shirt, your orange shirt. So to you, what is red associated with? Aside from power or whatever, what's red mean to you? It's just a strong, bold, confident... So you value those things, strength, boldness, confidence. Subjective, right? So personal, yeah. yeah. Bland, I can't believe it. And I called your favorite color aggressive. <laughs> yeah, so. so there we go. Yeah. We're even. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. All right. Let's move on and see what they've got in store for yeah. us next. Okay. Okay, we're done arguing about our favorite color. What's the next topic, Jonathan? So now we have Chris Fussell on the growth of war technology. The 20th century was all about hierarchies. If you want to create something, if you want to, if you want to start a country, create a product, whatever it is, your goal is to create a highly efficient hierarchical model, scale it, because that's what the competition's doing, and whoever does that the largest and with the most efficiency will eventually dominate the market. 21st century is dominated by networks. Because the introduction of the information age, we can suddenly create free flow, these globally distributed organic networks of, in, of individuals. It's a radically different environment for everyone. That translates into any space that you can imagine, really. Everyone's wrestling with some version of this because we grew up in the, in the bureaucratic model. And so we're trying to change not just the way we act, but our psychology and how we view the world. And it's going to change the, the battlefield as well. You know, it's inevitable that technology curve continues to grow exponentially. One of the major areas we're seeing that is the debate around unmanned vehicles. So 
is a completely robotic battlefield out of the question at some point? No, I think it's out of the question not to think about that as a, as a possible end state. So now we have you know, uh, a single predator type overhead aircraft unmanned that can do X, Y, Z. Fast forward that 20 years and the, as the technology scale continues to increase exponentially, that could be a single aircraft that has a network of thousands around it that are real-time monitoring on the ground, in the air, buildings, whatever the case may be. Where the technology is pushing conflict is moving so much faster than our system's ability to adapt and regulate it that it's going to be real, a real challenge for us in the next 10 to 15 years. So I'm no military expert, but really? <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think we could start by talking about this bigger picture of wrangling the possibilities of this chaotic, mm -hmm. distributed world of the internet. I believe that there can be a world with world peace. I know this might be absurd, but I believe in it, right? I believe in, in building generosity engines that make people feel included and accepted, and with that, I feel like we can make the world a better place. And then I hear something like this, and if I would see probably numbers, what is being spent on creating machines that can battle each other eventually? It terrifies me, because all I'm thinking is there's people starving, and I'm not, I'm not solving the world, don't get me wrong, I'm selling temporary tattoos and, and whatever, I'm, I'm not charity water. I feel, oftentimes feel like I should step it up, I should actually set the bar higher in making this world a better place, not just what I'm doing right now. I mean, it comes down to if you look at the venture capital world, okay. if you look at what is being funded. Like, if there's one more photo sharing app that gets, like, 10 million, like, solving a problem that really doesn't exist anymore or that shouldn't be solved because so many other people solved it. And, I mean, I get it. If you're, if you're an investor, you want to see a return. But I feel like, what about the startups that are trying to solve problems that are just not as, will not have as hyper growth <laughs> because it's not as sexy or it is solving a problem that is on a much smaller scale and maybe for a smaller sliver of society but will have an incredible impact on a, a certain part of the community. Have you ever heard of Maggie Doyne? She's the most remarkable young woman I've ever met. She's originally from Jersey and traveled when she was 18 to Nepal and Himalayas, backpacking, and was so struck by the orphans that she saw on the street. We're talking four-year-olds, three-year-olds, six-year-olds, on their own, with nothing. Right. And she, she just couldn't handle it. And she called her parents and said, like, hey, I have about $5,000 saved from babysitting. Can you please send me this money? I need to do something. Right. So fast forward 10 years later, she runs a global organization called Blink Now. She now has a school out in Nepal where she's the legal guardian of 51. She adopted 51 orphans. Oh, my God. Uh, between six months to 16, 17 now. She teaches 500 kids a day. She feeds 500 kids a day. I mean, this woman is a force of nature and she is changing the world. So I'm saying there's so many examples like this that I feel like Entrepreneur Magazine, Inc. Magazine, all these magazines should, should just feature that so much more that we all sort of raise the bar in what we believe should our company be doing. Because you can, have, you can make a living with companies like this that have a huge impact on people's lives. And at the same time, it is your career. What if there were... 3,000 of those around the world? What if there were 10,000? You know, it seems like the good things rarely scale as well as the eh things. We see individuals doing something really cool that radiates out within their community, and it's too rare that we see those things metastasizing and becoming like a worldwide force for but good. But why is that? That's is the because, question. Is it because our values are in, I need to do something that makes me money? 
that makes me rich, that gives me power. It's not incompatible to make a living and do something positive for the world. One decent example, and this is not an intentional plug, is Warby Parker. I don't know the souls of the people who run that company, but the fact that they're giving a pair of glasses away for every pair Super that cool. somebody buys, that's pretty amazing, yeah. you know? And that I is agree. making a genuine concrete difference. You I know? Agree. And if every company did that, a very massive gas company and every other kind of company, like even if the company isn't in its very nature dedicated mm -hmm. to solving some specific human problem, the world would be a better place. But I think, you know, this younger generation now that I, I get to work with a lot of really young people and they're purpose driven. They're setting the bar high. It's not just money. It's like, hey, I need to be able to go home and feel good about what I'm doing. And it has, a, it has an impact on my life or my community or, I mean, when I see my young teams working for Talio, Creative Mornings, whatever, and I see how they set the bar really high for their life and to make an impact, that gives me so much hope. <laughs> yeah. And also for my children, you know, I want to make sure that they set the bar high too. I don't know if this will trigger all kinds of like leader guilt, but as the head of something like Tatley, how do you try to support those aspirations mm -hmm. in the younger members of your team? You're making a cool product, but as mm -hmm. you said, it's temporary tattoos. I'm not going to change the world with the temporary tattoos themselves, right? But there's a lot of layers in there that I'm trying to put in a layer of doing good in. So for example, we license the art from professional artists and designers and give them a very generous cut from every single sale. So the better your design sells, the more money you make. The secret to a creative life, I firmly believe, is passive income. So I have single-handedly created some really remarkable passive income for some of our best-selling artists. Makes me so happy. Every three months when you send out the, the artist royalties, we get exclamation point email all caps back because it frees up some of our artists to experiment and do other things. So that's one little sliver right there, that's right? That's huge. Then, for example, I do not understand why I should be producing my tattoos in Asia just so that I can make a higher profit. I really firmly believe if nobody starts making a difference, if nobody starts saying, hey, why don't we produce in our country, then nothing will ever change. I must say it was really eye-opening when pretty early on uh, with Tatley, we had to do a super rush collating job for DreamWorks for a big film. They, it was very exciting. And I had to, I made an ad on Craigslist and said, hey, we need probably about 10 people for two days for maybe eight hours a day to, you know, stuff these envelopes and whatever. And we're talking, you know, maybe I offered $10 an hour or something or $12, I don't, I don't remember. But after two hours, I had to turn off this ad because we got inundated with emails. If you looked at the cross-section of who applied for this two-day, you know, it's very easy to do, gig. It was from the PhD person to a 16-year-old student. So when we invited all these people in and I sat there and I really got a taste of how many people in this city are scrambling to make it work and that need jobs that are not, you need to be highly trained for. I realized, man, guys, I ne we need to keep all of this in-house because we need, to, we need to do what's right for our small community again. So now we, we do all the co-lighting and stuffing and shipping and everything happens out of Brooklyn. Gotcha. And that makes me super happy. Like we are creating, you know, on a small scale, but we're creating jobs. Nothing's secure anymore. Like I grew up in Switzerland, always being told, your resume has to be one straight line. It has to be very like thought out. There can't be any detours. God forbid there's a gap of three months. What do you do there? You know, are you a loser? Are you just <laughs> someone that... So there's this security-driven 
go and study business because then you're safe and you can probably work in a bank. Right. You know, there there is no safety net anymore for this generation. I think often That's think right. about that with my kids, but which also then actually liberates you in some way, right? Because then you start experimenting. You know, I might as well go travel for two years because who knows? I remember reading that most of the significant periods historically in philosophy and people coming up with new ideas and totally mm -hmm. new ways of envisioning the world have been times when things were geopolitically falling apart. Crises. Yeah. Because the rules don't apply anymore. And then also what the internet allows, this freedom of being a freelancer. I always think about the Uber model. Like whenever I talk to drivers and they tell me with tears in their eyes, like once I had a guy that said he ran a Kmart before, but he would never see his kids. And he says now he goes home at three, he picks up his daughter, he, sh he does homework with her for about two hours, and then he's back on the road, but he says, I now see my children. I'm a dad. I want to be that person, right? How awesome is that? So things are in flux, but we are hopeful that it'll end up with a better world at it the will. end of it. I'm not hoping. I know. I'm convinced. <laughs> Excellent. And that's the difference between red and blue. Right exactly. Um, all right. Tina Roth Eisenberg, it has been wonderful having you on the show today. Thank, Thank you so you. much. It's a real for being honor here. to be here. This is the chair that Neil deGrasse Tyson sat in at some point. It may have been that very chair. I'm, we did not have him sign it, though, so I don't Okay, I but I'm nerding out about it. And that is it for this week's episode of Think Again. Please join us next week for Star Trek legend and internet superhero George Takei. See you then.